The purpose of Faith Angle is to connect religious leaders with leading journalists, and today's conversation comes at it from both sides. The setting for the conversation you're about to hear was a forum of 19 journalists, over half of whom work at outlets west of the Mississippi, who gathered just three days after the Supreme Court's ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The opening 30-minute reflection comes from one of the country's most thoughtful, publicly-minded evangelical leaders, Dr. Russell Moore, now one year into directing the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. For eight years before that, Dr. Moore was president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, a denomination he recently left, and he tells that story in detail when asked about it by Molly Ball, Time Magazine's national political correspondent. Dr. Moore has published seven books and hundreds of articles, and his weekly podcast, The Russell Moore Show, is a must-listen either if you're a nerd like me or if you're intrigued by the twists and turns of some 80 million American evangelicals and the way they'll continue to impact our political economy in the years ahead. Also included for you in the show notes is Dr. Moore's podcast conversation with The Atlantic's Tim Alberta, another participant at this Faith Angle gathering, reporting on the divergent paths of two evangelical pastors. That story really is worth a listen, as is Tim's fascinating May 2022 Atlantic story that may grow into a book. For her part, Molly Ball writes a weekly piece on U.S. politics at Time Magazine. She's also the recent author of Pelosi, a book about the first woman Speaker of the House. Previously, she covered U.S. politics at The Atlantic, and before that, at Politico, as well as two newspapers in Nevada and Cambodia. As you'll hear her reference, Molly and Dr. Moore also sat down together in 2014 for a Faith Angle conversation convened by our late founder, Mike Cromarty, on the persistence of America's culture wars. Abortion and gay marriage featured prominently in that dialogue, also linked in the show notes, but not race, as Molly reflects upon eight years later. This conversation aimed at making space for questions that a journalist may not have time to include in a cover story. Why and how is abortion morally complex? Where is the other side really coming from? At one point, Dr. Moore references a 2019 Atlantic piece from Caitlin Flanagan, the dishonesty of the abortion debate, why we need to face the best arguments from the other side. That too is linked in the show notes, along with the 90-minute Q&A session with the journalist that followed what you'll soon hear. Does today's politics leave room for the other side's best argument? For millions of Americans, abortion is the consummate black and white moral issue. How can leading journalists better understand and describe the religious motivations, particularly of a pro-life group of Americans who have worked for the last 50 years toward this reform? What relationship do the abortion wars have with issues of immigration, marginalization, and national or ethnic identity? Enjoy a brilliant conversation, two parts religion and culture and politics, and one part personal. Well, in thinking about the, the Dobbs case and sort of the, the implications going forward with evangelicals, if the cliche is the headline dims in disarray, uh, the headline is often evangelicals in disarray because it is so often true. Uh, th there is a sense in which evangelicalism is at a very precarious uh, moment and there are divides uh, right through not only just about every denomination, every ministry, but every local congregation. Tim's uh, piece in The Atlantic uh, last month uh, surveys that I think really well. And what I heard immediately after that piece was published uh, would be from pastors all over the country saying, well, that's exactly what's happening for me. So even in congregations that aren't currently divided by politics or racial justice questions or something else, there's a sense of precariousness that those sorts of divisions and divides can happen at any moment. Uh, so that I, I find myself in the surreal situation of having the reverse conversation from what I would have been having 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago, I would often have uh, parents of young adult children who would say, uh, what do I do? I'm worried about my son or my daughter uh, going away to college and losing his or her faith. How can I uh, shore them up? 
Uh, now I'm more often hearing from young adult Christians who are saying, what do I do about my mom and dad who are uh, getting into conspiracy theories on Facebook or who want to have every uh, family gathering be about debates over politics? How do I maintain a relationship without, um, without giving into that? Uh, those divides are very real. One of the things that's interesting is the way that that divide does not tend to show up on the abortion issue. And so the sorts of generational uh, transformations within evangelicalism don't seem to be happening on abortion. They do in some ways in terms of tactics and emphasis, but not on the issue itself. And so I'd like to reflect on why that is and what that's going to mean in my view in the for the future for the next few minutes. It, there, is a, there is a narrative that an evangelical opposition to abortion, evangelical pro-life uh, view, is a cynical uh, manifestation of American politics. So think of, for instance, Randall Balmer's uh, book, Bad Faith, um, in which uh, Balmer argues that abortion was not the motivating issue for the religious right. Uh, that instead the motivating issue had to do with uh, uh, race. And so he quotes from Paul Weyrich and Richard Vigory and others who were leading figures in the religious right, uh, talking about the motivation being IRS decisions on evangelical Christian academies, segregation academies, uh, the Bob Jones case, uh, and so forth, in order to make the case the myth is that evangelicals were apolitical. He's right, that was not really true uh, at all, and then became mobilized after Roe versus Wade. He's right also that that is not true in exactly the way that we, uh, that we often see it. I don't think, though, that his uh, cynical, for, for lack of a better word, reading of that is entirely true either. I mean, even if one takes the most cynical view possible, there has to be a reason why people are motivated by a particular issue. So if, if one looks at, for instance, the Protestant Reformation, uh, and if one were to say, well, we can, we can look at this simply in economic and political terms. Uh, this has to do with the church building itself up through the selling of indulgences. One still has to ask, why are people buying indulgences? Why does that work? Uh, something can't be marketed if there's not a, an audience for it. So there had to be a theological base that caused that to be motivating to people to say, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to go to purgatory. Uh, in the same way, I think the issue of uh, abortion, even in the most cynical readings, taps into something present in evangelical life that has been persistent. Um, one of the things that people will often point to are the Southern Baptist um, Convention resolutions in 1971 and 1974, uh, which were essentially uh, pro-choice in the way that we would read it now because uh, the exception clauses were so broad. Uh, the problem with that reading is that often there's a lack of understanding of what actually was happening within the SBC and within uh, the larger world of evangelical Protestantism at the time. Uh, a great deal of it had to do with what we would now call negative polarization, except not the kind of negative polarization that's red state, blue state, but Protestant Catholic. So for, for most of the 20th century, if you look at uh, the writings, especially coming out of the Baptist uh, tradition, the writings that were concerned with religious liberty and religious freedom, they were not directed toward uh, a fear of a secularizing America in the way that they would be now. They were written about the, the fears of an authoritarian Catholic church, uh, immigrant communities, uh, coming in, not assimilating. You see the same sort of language showing up in other, uh, in other places later. The sort of rhetoric that was being used uh, against uh, Al Smith in 1928, John F. Kennedy in 1960, fear that there would be dual loyalties um, and that the Roman Catholic Church, once it achieved power, would not uh, allow for religious freedom. The abortion issue, seen as a Catholic issue, uh, often led to the exact opposite uh, response from some committed evangelicals. 
With that, there was a, a kind of NIMBY uh, phenomenon of, especially in the South, evangelical Protestants not thinking that abortion was or could be a commonplace practice um, among them. And so if you look at those resolutions in the 1970s, it's shocking to people how the exception seems so broad, but they're worded in such a way as to condemn abortion and then to give uh, the exceptions. So abortion, obviously not as a means of uh, birth control. Abortion is a terrible thing. And then these exceptions that are very, that are very broad. Uh, there is a sense in which <clears throat> what happened in the years uh, through the 1970s and through the 1980s is that there was a growing awareness that abortion actually can happen at a scale that, uh, that people previously did not think uh, would be the case. Whether the position is right or wrong, that is a factor that took place. There's also uh, the importance of recognizing multiple motivations uh, within the pro-life movement. Pro-life movement is not one thing. There's a political wing of the pro-life movement. There's a ministry wing of the pro-life movement. There's a, a, a cultural persuasive wing of the pro-life movement that are working together. But often, even within those subcategories, you have uh, multiple motivations for the pro-life position and for opposition to abortion. So if you look at, for instance, uh, some of the rhetoric uh, from the pro-life movement um, in the 1980s, in the early 1990s, a great deal of it was framed in terms of cultural decay. Uh, abortion is a sign of the same factors that gave us the sexual revolution, um, the same factors that are leading to a cultural decline of the country in language that could be framed in terms of a Christian America that is being lost. Uh, that is almost never the sort of rhetoric that one is going to hear from younger committed pro-life evangelicals who are just as opposed to abortion as their parents or grandparents. These are people who don't see the culture around them as um, Jerusalem turning into Babylon. They're, they're accustomed to uh, being a cultural minority in, in their view within American culture. They're not going to be the people who are going to line up for Disney boycotts or Starbucks boycotts or, or those sorts of things. Nor are they going to be the people who are going to frame their opposition in terms of um, a hand-wringing or a, a fear-mongering about the future. But they're just as opposed to uh, abortion. And a great deal of this has to do with the fact that with abortion, uh, unlike some other culture war issues, there is the question of human dignity and human vulnerability. Uh, so uh, Stephen Prothero's uh, book, uh, Why Liberals Win the Culture Wars, um, makes the argument that conservative opposition on culture war issues uh, is only for a brief period of time, historically speaking, and then it assimilates whatever the cultural revolution has been. In many cases, that's right, uh, and he demonstrates that. What I, where I think he's wrong uh, is that often he is framing as conservative the culture war issues that have been lost and progressive the culture war issues that have been won, in, under that definition, yes, of course, by definition, the liberals would always win the culture wars. But often these culture war issues are much more complex than that. Is prohibition a conservative uh, project or is it a progressive project? It's both. There's a, a moral sense of moral reform that came with prohibition, but there also was a progressive sense of social justice. Prohibition was tied in with the social gospel movement. And so I think there's a, a retroactive uh, shading there that doesn't really work. But also with abortion, uh, there really is the question of uh, not just one person involved, but two. And so when the question becomes uh, what is, has often been said since the Dobbs case by people who are outraged by the decision, this is the imposition of religion. Um, upon people who don't share that religion. 
This is not going to be persuasive to younger evangelicals precisely because they see the disconnect there. These would be the same people who would say, uh, I'm concerned about migrant children at the border because I believe that the Bible says care for the stranger. These are people who are made invisible. Uh, we see them and that means that we care about justice for them. They see the same dynamic happening as it relates to both the mother and uh, the unborn child. That one can agree with that uh, assessment or disagree with that assessment, but that is the way that they see it. And so the arguments uh, that would say this is an imposition of religion, to them, uh, this is not an imposition of anything. This is a conscience that is being motivated uh, by a sense of justice which is why it's sometimes disorienting to people if they move out of sort of the political advocacy space of the pro-life movement and to the on-the-ground sort of ministries, uh, pregnancy resource centers and, and other things, and they're expecting to see uh, whatever they believe to be typical of the religious right, and they see the very same people who are motivated uh, with a pro-life view of abortion also the people who are concerned about the Kurdish refugees um, uh, around the, the corner. Also the people who are concerned about uh, the way that migrant children are being treated at the border. That is presented as something inconsistent because it, it doesn't follow uh, one or the other of the current party lines. It doesn't feel inconsistent to the people who are operating in those spaces. And these are people who are increasingly uh, increasingly comfortable is not the right word, but increasingly accustomed to being outside of those boundaries and being somewhat uh, homeless uh, politically. So the, the idea of uh, the rights of the unborn child uh, being made in terms of uh, viability uh, are not going to be persuasive to younger evangelicals who have a sense of no human being as being viable, if what we mean by viable as able to exist independently. Uh, every one of us exists in an ecosystem, ecosystem of the womb, ecosystem outside of the womb, but no one is existing um, independently. And so there, there is a reason then why the very same evangelicals who might have completely different views from their grandparents on drinking alcohol or uh, maybe even completely different views from their grandparents on same-sex marriage or some other uh, fiery culture war issue who don't uh, when it comes to the question of abortion. And I don't see that changing uh, anytime in the near term. Um, when it comes to the question of uh, what's often called a, a whole life, uh, pro-life uh, message. The difficulty in adjudicating that is how someone is using the term whole life. Um, in some settings, the idea of whole life is used similar to the way that some people use all lives matter uh, as it applies to Black Lives Matter which is a dismissive term. Well, all lives matter, therefore, uh, we're, we're not going to concentrate on black lives matter. There are some people who have used uh, a comprehensive view of human dignity to say, why are you concerned about the unborn uh, unless you also um, have the exact same positions on social safety net, uh, gun control policies, specific uh, immigration policies, then one cannot speak to the issue of uh, the unborn. That sort of tactic has not been persuasive uh, for, for a variety of reasons. One of those things being, imagine in all of these cases that you translate the abortion issue to the border. Uh, if someone were to say, before you can be concerned about migrant children, you have to also be dealing with um, the economic forces that are causing the cartels to emerge in the first place. That's not going to be persuasive to people who, who say there are children suffering at the border right now who need to be cared for. Uh, but also because what is initially used as an argument to sort of shut down the debate 
the younger one goes in evangelicalism, the more you have people who are saying, yes, human dignity across the board. Uh, they are open to social safety net uh, proposals that their parents or grandparents might have considered to be uh, too far left. Uh, it's very uncommon for me to find an under 40 evangelical who is working in any pro-life space who's not for paid family leave, uh, for instance, and a variety of other uh, sorts of proposals and are open to even more. So a, a whole life uh, position uh, that actually is engaged in these issues is something that is, uh, is growing, in, in my view, especially among the people who are activists. When it comes to the future of the pro-life movement, what I'm worried about is not, uh, is not so much that we are going to have younger evangelicals who are going to uh, deviate from the uh, previous generations on the abortion issue, but almost the reverse. What concerns me and what I think ought to concern uh, people who don't agree with evangelicals on abortion, uh, perhaps, are the ways in which abortion often isn't a motivating factor in evangelical political activism. So PRI, uh, for instance, uh, PRI uh, did a uh, survey um, a year or so ago showing where abortion is in terms of motivation uh, for political activism for white evangelicals. Most people expect that it's number one. It was actually way down the list in terms of a motivating factor with uh, much higher uh, areas of energy coming in places of immigration, race, uh, nationalism, and so forth. That's deeply concerning to me because whether one agrees or disagrees with evangelicals and Roman Catholics and, and others on abortion, the motivating factor behind uh, the pro-life uh, view, at least at the, at the activist level, is a concern for human dignity and a concern for human vulnerability. That's very different from the sort of um, right-wing ethno-nationalist uh, movements, populist movements that we see emerging around the world right now, which are largely concerned with ethnic identity or national identity. Uh, that, is a, that is a turn that has significant implications, uh, in, in my view, for Christian witness, but also for the, the democratic order. And so a, a loosening and a weakening of a commitment to a pro-life ethic is not necessarily good news, even for people who would disagree with us uh, on that issue. Matthew Rose's book, uh, World After Liberalism, uh, makes this case, I think, really well about, uh, about the way that ethnic identity issues uh, often motivated in a despising and a hatred of vulnerability, uh, whether that's refugees or migrants, the disabled, uh, others, uh, has at its root both a co-opting and a using of Christian themes uh, as a way to um, identify someone as European, for instance, as standing up for Western civilization, with a despising of some of those uh, core Christian doctrinal themes, that the strong do not dominate the weak, uh, for instance. So the, the, any diminishing there is not going to be uh, necessarily a move in a good direction for uh, the people who disagree with us. As uh, Ross Douthat said several years ago, if you thought the religious right was bad, wait until you see the post-religious right. And uh, a, a move toward an LOL, nothing matters uh, view of, uh, of populism is not going to be uh, development in the right direction. For me, as a pro-life uh, evangelical, the primary thing that I'm worried about right now has to do with the credibility of the church itself for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons uh, does have to do with the uh, abortion debate. Uh, look at Fenton O'Toole's uh, recent uh, biography of modern Ireland uh, that's looking at the sea change that has happened in terms of abortion, divorce, 
uh, other uh, social and cultural issues in Ireland. Uh, why does that come about? Largely comes about because of the collapse of credibility of the Irish Catholic Church. O'Toole gives the uh, example of uh, the Archbishop of Dublin, uh, Archbishop McQuaid, who had such cultural influence that when he heard uh, Duke Ellington singing, I'm always true to you in my fashion on the radio, he was able to call the radio station and say, this song promotes moral ambiguity and the radio station would take it off. At the same time, as O'Toole argues, uh, the church itself uh, was involved in covering up horrific crimes against uh, the most uh, vulnerable people uh, in their care. And once people were able to see uh, the difference between the rhetoric in the cultural arena and the reality in the church arena, the response was a complete uh, rejection of everything uh, that the church was advocating, at least in the social arena. So that as O'Toole puts it, uh, the sort of situation that could lead to parents bringing their children who had been abused to apologize to the priests who abused them was so morally perverse and uh, such a gaslighting technique that the people came to conclude that they were actually uh, more moral than their clergy and their, uh, and their leaders uh, on these issues of morality. And the response is a complete rejection. 2018, uh, where Ireland had been an outlier in Europe on uh, social and culture war issues, 2018, Ireland adopts a very liberalized abortion law. 2019, a, a very liberalized uh, divorce law. And the church has no credibility there at all. So in my view as a pro-life evangelical, um, political influence is important, but political influence has to come with cultural influence. It does not matter if, uh, if Dobbs overrules Roe, if the response is an American public that's 80, 85% uh, pro-choice. That's not a sustainable uh, win. Has to come with cultural influence, um, with the, the persuasion that changes hearts and minds, and the political influence has to come with moral authority. And if there is a loss of moral authority, there is a loss of cultural influence. If there's a loss of cultural influence, there is no long-term holding to political gains. And so one of the issues that I think is most crucial for sustaining any sort of uh, evangelical commitment to human vulnerability, caring for women in crisis, caring for their children, uh, will be restoring the credibility of the church itself. And that is a, uh, that is a very difficult path at the moment. Sorry, I went longer than That's I was great. supposed to. Molly Ball, national political correspondent. <laughs> uh, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Um, I, uh, as, as we said, we're going to do this more as sort of an interview than a point counterpoint and uh, hopefully a, a conversation, a dialogue. Uh, but I did want to take you back to sort of uh, the beginning where you started the the quote unquote evangelicals in disarray because because uh, I wanted to to get you to talk a little bit more about uh, your own what led you to leave uh, the SBC a year ago now uh, and then the report that that, that came out uh, in May that you called uh, an apocalypse worse than you even imagined uh, these issues uh, as, as most of these, the people in this room I'm sure know. Uh, Dr. Moore, having been uh, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist, Baptist Convention for nearly a decade, uh, was a prominent uh, dissenter over, over Trump, but stayed uh, in that position and took a lot of heat, took a lot of flack, uh, but then was finally moved to leave uh, the denomination uh, over the sexual abuse crisis within the church, which he uh, asserted the, the church was not doing enough uh, to look inward and address. Uh, and then when the church finally did look inward and address it, uh, I, Dr. Moore wrote that it, it was worse than he could have even imagined. So I would like you to reflect on the aftermath that in, the, in the past, I guess it's been less than a month, um, of, of that report coming out and, and how you see uh, the community and, and, and the holders of power uh, addressing that. And then, you know, as you have related it to the broader 
credibility of the church and to the the culture wars as they resonate in in the political sphere because if there is this community as you're talking about uh, of uh, uh, particularly in the younger generation uh, of evangelicals who who are much more focused on the the, the continuity of these questions of human dignity uh, it's hard to see a place for them in a, in a church that is that is racked by these scandals and racked by the political divisions that you know that Tim wrote about and that you've also mentioned. Yeah, well, the the thing that is um, primarily concerning to me is not just that there are younger people who are leaving the church. That's the case in in every generation. It's why they are leaving the church, and so it's a very different. The uh, conflicted younger evangelical that I talk to right now, who says, I don't know if I can hang on, um, is almost never someone who is saying, I just don't know if I can believe in virgin births and miracles. Uh, nor is it someone who is saying, I just don't know that I can um, keep the moral uh, teachings uh, of the church. That would have been the case very typically 10 years ago. And, 50 years ago, uh, for that matter. Now it's usually uh, the reverse, in which someone is saying, I don't think I believe that the church believes what the church is teaching. Um, and so there is a sense of Christianity being used as a means to an end. That shows up in the, uh, in the political uh, divides. Even for younger evangelicals who might completely agree with uh, the political positions that their church is taking, if they see the church's teaching as being political, they can get their politics uh, somewhere else uh, and in a, without giving up a Sunday morning. And then when you see the sorts of scandals uh, that we have had, the, the problem is not just that people are saying, I see the seedy side of human nature that shows up in religious people. Again, that has always Elmer Gantry is written for a reason. Um, the, um, I was looking at a quote um, a few weeks ago about the judge in the um, Jim Baker, Tammy Faye Baker uh, case, PTL scandal in the 1980s, who had someone who called and said, are you a Christian? And he said, I would have said yes, but now I plead the Fifth Amendment after having seen everything that, that I've seen. But that's always been the case. Instead, what is happening now is that there are, um, there are people in churches who are asking, is this all that this is? That's a very different and a very troubling uh, matter for me. So when the, I'm not surprised uh, at all that when the Southern Baptist Convention gathered um, a month ago now, um, they acted reasonably in almost, well, in every vote that I can, can think of there. Um, the sort of um, conservative Baptist network uh, wing that was bringing in Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA and, um, and was participating in a backlash against calls for reform uh, of the SBC lost every vote. And uh, in the presidential uh, election, won less than 35% of the vote despite dominating uh, all of the conversation leading up to it. It's not surprising to me because that was always the case. Uh, I never uh, worried about what the Southern Baptist Convention would do when gathered together. I never walked away from a convention that I wasn't uh, encouraged and, and affirmed. It was what happened between uh, the conventions. And I see that, the dynamic that was happening there, very similar to what's happening in local congregations of almost every uh, denomination, where a very small group of people uh, can be a minority but can completely dominate the terms of, of the debate in a way that leads to uh, exhaustion. Uh, uh, someone and I were talking last night about the book of Breaking the Social Media Prism about the fact that you actually don't have uh, extremists uh, across the board on social media. It's that the people who are not extremists have lives and have more to lose and tend to disengage from social media altogether, leaving the extremists to dominate. That's actually showing up in real life now. 
happening in denominations, happening in local congregations, because there's not an understanding of the psychologies involved. Um, and so it's, um, uh, Brian Kloss has this uh, book, Corruptible, about power dynamics, and he uses the example of his mom, who was a school board member. She ran for school board because she loved kids, she loved education. Uh, she was interested in boring things, relatively speaking, about education policy. She wouldn't, he argues, run now if she had to um, deal with people screaming about CRT and masks and vaccine policies and conspiracy theories at the school board meeting. That's not what she went into it for. She just wouldn't run, which would leave it for the people who actually enjoy that kind of thing. That changes the, uh, the dynamic. That's what I see happening in local congregations and happening uh, denominationally. And there is a sense of, uh, in many cases, people eventually say, I came into this to serve Jesus and to serve people. I can do that in other ways. In my own case, it was, um, what I was facing was a very small group of people um, who would do anything because they knew, um, they knew that the way that they could shut something down is by having investigation after investigation that would always at the end of the investigation show nothing, but it would take a year of um, emotional and spiritual and psychological energy. Um, that eventually came to the place where um, my son, uh, who was 15 at the time, asked my wife, um, it, has dad had an affair or something? He said, I, you, I can take it, be honest with me. What is uh, this about? And so I said, well, why don't you come with me when they read their grievances uh, out against me? So he went with me to an SBC executive committee, first and last one he ever went to. And afterward, we walked out and I said, ah, what'd you think? And he said, well, he said, I feel better about you than I did before, but my question is, why do we want to be a part of this? This is so angry, uh, and, and he said, and, and just so stupidly run, that why do we want to be a part of this? That was very sobering to me because I came from a time period in which being a Southern Baptist was wrapped up in almost every part of my uh, identity. We were, we were raised in such a way, we knew there were other Christians, but bless their hearts, they did the best they could with what they had. We were the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, he, he doesn't uh, live in that sort of a world. And so my wife said to me, you know, you can do what you want and I'm with you till the end, but if you're a Southern Baptist by summer, you'll be in an interfaith marriage. And I said, okay, I think, I think you're right on this. Even though, again, most of the people um, I think are in a good direction within the SBC are making the right decisions a lot of the people that are responsible for the crisis that we see right now uh, are leaving and are gone. Um, and I think that that's, so I'm not, um, I'm not hopeless about the future of the SBC, but it's going to take people who not only win elections, but also are paying attention and are uh, engaged between conventions. Yeah, well Forgive me for being a little bit skeptical here, and maybe you're speaking only very narrowly about specifically the sexual abuse crisis and not anything else, but this idea that there's sort of uh, a silent majority that, that wants people to be nicer and that it's only the sort of perfidy of their leaders that's caused the you know, toxic uh, parts of the conversation. I find that, I mean, we both lived through the, the Trump years. I mean, yeah. the, the types of things that Tim writes about, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the Greg Locks of the world who are filling the pews. Yep. And it's the pastors who are trying to take a less uh, political uh, position or, to, or trying to bring people together and, 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 be, uh, and, 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 and get off this train of identity, poli of, of white identity politics in particular. 
uh, they're not drawing the crowds. So how? So I find it a little bit difficult to believe. But, that, but that's that not that's not exactly right. Okay. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at the growing churches in the United States right now, you have some, particularly in the Pentecostal charismatic uh, world, that are indeed building and growing uh, crowds in this way. It is true that crazy as a church growth strategy uh, is, is working in a lot of places, mostly by drawing out uh, people from other congregations who mistake crazy for conviction. Uh, that is happening. But it's also true that if you look at, uh, particularly within the SBC, you look at the fastest growing uh, congregations, they're not uh, politicized uh, congregations. Um, and where you do see that taking place, again, often, if you look at your typical church, for instance, that's torn apart by, um, I had a, a pastor not long ago say that he would put a hoodie on when he went into the grocery store, pastor of a very large church, because he had prayed for the family of George Floyd, and after that was accused of being a critical race theorist. Uh, and so he would, he would have this controversy going on. If you took a vote in his congregation and said, is Pastor Tommy a critical race theorist? 90% of the people would not say that that's the case. 10% of the people, though, are the ones who are constantly uh, at him and are the people who will say, you know, the problem is Pastor Tommy is just always in the middle of controversy because they're putting Pastor Tommy in the middle of controversy. And eventually that exhausts even the 90% who start to say, you know, why are you always putting us through this? Uh, well, we've got to get back to abortion and there is so much that's fascinating to discuss on uh, this question. And, and you mentioned uh, the idea of Christianity as, as a means to an end, right? And I'm sure this is an argument that you heard a lot, that we all heard a lot uh, in, in, in the Trump years, this idea that sort of uh, a vulgar vessel was necessary to achieve holy aims. And in the wake of this decision, a lot of those people are taking a victory lap saying, mm -hmm. see, we were right. He gave us what we wanted. Uh, are they in fact vindicated? Well, here, here's the argument that they would use. Um, uh, the argument that they would use is that there had to be a, a disruptive figure who would be willing to do whatever it took to appoint the sorts of people who would, who would uh, hand down the, the Dobbs case. I don't uh, buy that argument for a number of reasons. I mean, one of them, uh, the author of the Dobbs case is a George W. Bush uh, appointee. Um, I don't think that you would have had largely uh, any different decision from a uh, Jeb Bush court or Marco Rubio court, a Ted Cruz court, uh, than you would have with a Donald Trump court, especially given the way that um, attention is so carefully paid now on both the right and the left to uh, court appointments. So I don't think that Donald Trump uniquely was going to, um, to make uh, judicial appointments that someone else wouldn't have made. I also think that one has to look um, not only at the final result in this case, but what is the cost of hitching the pro-life movement to a figure such as this? Now, again, I think people can make arguments in, uh, in various ways, but that is deeply concerning to me. I don't think you can have long-term a pro-life ethic without a concern for vulnerability, a concern for uh, women, um, character. I mean, I think all of those things matter. Where do you think we go from here? I, I mean, I, you asked someone else's question on your, on your podcast, and I thought it, you put it very well. There's sort of we can imagine a few different uh, trajectories from here. One is that uh, after everyone's done freaking out, we sort of settle into a new, more, more pro-life equilibrium as a country. Uh, and uh, one is that uh, we, you know, we continue to pull farther apart and, 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 and keep fighting potentially to the point of the destruction of institutions. And one is that there's a backlash uh, and, and that we end up in actually uh, a less pro-life equilibrium than we were before. Um, so I, I, I'm curious where you think we're going. Th that's sort of the policy 
uh, framework, but also in sort of like the more sociocultural or sort of uh, emotional framework, how, how mad are we gonna be at each other in the long term over this? Yeah, well, on, on the Dobbs case, I'm not really sure because I think a lot of that is going to depend on what are the legislative and cultural and political sorts of initiatives that, that come out of this, along with what are the support systems that are given uh, to women and families and, and other people. I don't think we know what that is going to look like yet. I could see uh, the Dobbs case being similar to Obergefell or to Hobby Lobby, where uh, on both the right and the left, there were uh, very dire predictions about what this would look like. So there were many in my sort of world who would say, um, after Obergefell, it's going to be illegal to uh, read the Bible in your church and, and so forth. And eventually, after a while, people see that that didn't happen. Um, and they sort of moved on into the future. Hobby Lobby, there were uh, very panicked sorts of uh, uh, comments coming from the left that then were just put aside and the, the rest of the country uh, moved on. Could be like that. Uh, it could be that what we see uh, is instead a, a backlash uh, that takes place that if this is handled poorly could lead to, um, could lead to an, even, uh, an even more entrenched pro-choice uh, position, but I just don't think we know at this point uh, what's going to happen. What would you like to see? I mean, do you, is there, a, is there a, an ideal sort of policy framework that you'd like to see? Well, what, what I would like to see, and of course I'm, I'm pro-life, what I would like to see is uh, a, a pro-life uh, America uh, in which human vulnerability is treasured and not despised, and that there are support systems and protections for everybody in every position of, of crisis. It's what I would like to see. I'm not sure that that's where we're headed. Uh, it, it could be, but um, I think the next several years are going to, are going to show that. Yeah, um, I wanna throw it out to the group pretty soon, but um, I, and, and I know that you're all gonna have much better and more interesting questions than I do. But, but before I do, you know, it was interesting to go back and reflect on our 2014 conversation where you know, we talked about the culture war uh, mostly from the perspective of specifically gay marriage and abortion. Uh, and then I made this sort of effort to like, bring in issues that we weren't talking about. And I, and I mentioned you know, uh, assisted suicide and immigration and the environment. But we really did not talk about race in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, it's, a, it's a, 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 a humongous and important blind spot that both of us had that we didn't see this being a matter of you know, cultural controversy that was going to be politically divisive over the long term. And of course, it has been. And, and this has also been uh, one of the big uh, controversies that you have been a part of. So. Uh, I guess I'm wondering whether and how you think that uh, that the, the, the fact that we sort of didn't think of that at the time has sort of been the reason for, mm -hmm. for everything that, that happened since. Yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, Charlie Sykes at The Bulwark, who um, in his book of why the, why the Right Lost Its Mind argued that he, as a conservative uh, talk radio host, had this understanding that there was always this racist fringe, but that this was, uh, to use his, his terminology, a recessive gene, uh, and, and did not represent the mainstream of the movement. It was very easy to come to that conclusion for a long time, because there would be the Steve Kings and the David Dukes and, and so forth, but that wasn't what was uh, coming from the national uh, leadership. Uh, a George W. Bush, uh, when, when Trent Lott made his comments about uh, Strom Thurmond, uh, George W. Bush was the first one to denounce it and to seek to win uh, votes of, of minority voters and so forth. I think what we have seen over the past several years is that there is this 
resurgent blood and soil uh, sort of identity politics emerging at the same time really all over the world, uh, in most places in the world, and that the United States is not an exception to that. Um, but also the way that uh, often these Issues are being framed in terms of uh, almost every issue I would find that was deeply visceral with people in a controversial way would be one step uh, removed from race in almost uh, every case, that this was the uh, sort of motivating uh, kind of factor for people inside and outside of the church. Um, for instance, on the uh, immigration issue, um, again, you look at the polling and most people were in the same place uh, when it came to immigration. Tough, uh, tougher security and compassion for uh, people who are already here. But the people who were doggedly opposed to this had an entire theory of George Soros uh, manipulating uh, uh, the great, great replacement theory before we knew what the name for that was. And that, it seems to me, is getting worse and not getting better, both in the country and in, and in local churches. Well, but, and so you talk about abortion as sort of being separate or as being a, a, you know, a unifying uh, issue for religious conservatives, I guess. Um, but, I, but I think for a lot of people, maybe especially on the left, but there, there's, the, there's a feeling that the very idea of a culture war stems from this make America great again nostalgia, that, in, that when it comes to both, both race and gender, that it's about a sort of yearning for the hierarchies of the past, and, and indeed is a sort of authoritarian, you know, and, the, and this relates to the sort of, you know, abuse of power, intoxication with power that you're talking about in the part of some, some leaders, uh, that, that these are all bound up together in a sort of you know, toxic wistfulness for a perhaps imaginary country where, where the right people were in charge and nobody else had a voice. Do you think that's wrong? I think it's wrong as it applies to the abortion issue. Um, I think that certainly uh, is a reality, but I think that there are, again, multiple motivations uh, within the pro-life movement, and a, a great stream of that is, uh, is motivated by a response to a sort of toxic authoritarianism that says it is an abuse of power uh, to take two people uh, with, with dignity and rights and to treat them as though only one of them mattered. Now, one can agree or disagree with that, but that is uh, a motivation, which is, which is one of the reasons why I think within evangelicalism you see these, these wide divides on some, so many of these other issues, but not there. Faith Angle exists to connect leading journalists with religious leaders and clerics. Thanks for listening.